Now, a writer whose blog, How to Write Badly Well, has been visited by nervous scribes over half a million times, and owing to popular demand, is now a book. And, as the poet laureate of Tennyson's County of Lincolnshire, he's put the glee into Cleethorpes, the best into Boston, and the stanzas into Stamford. Please welcome George Stickley. So, Joel, we invited you to imagine a culture in love with Baroque writing, and it just so happened you'd got just the people in mind, didn't you? Well, yeah, absolutely. Um, I've, I happen to know of a, a nation um, called Grob, which is a fictional nation of my own invention, um, which I came up with in order to be an expert about something. Um, like I realised that I wanted to be an expert, and that seemed to involve a lot of legwork and reading, so I thought best to start something, get in on the ground floor, and... Uh, and it turned, I've been doing a series of podcasts about the history of this, of this nation. It turns out any subject I choose to talk about, I know an awful lot about. Um, <laughs> well, let's hear your account of their infatuation, the Grobian Baroque. The Baroque period arrived in Grob sometime around 1790, by which point the rest of the world had forgotten all about it and was busily getting on with the Enlightenment. This lack of cultural punctuality is a common feature throughout Grobian history, This is, after all, a nation that repeatedly failed to discover the wheel, even after it was shown to them by outsiders and patiently explained. (laughs) When the Baroque did hit Grob, however, it hit hard. This small and impressionable nation was swept by an enthusiasm for Baroque music, Baroque architecture and even Baroque cookery, which tends to involve more seasoning than most people consider reasonable. (laughs) The obsession was even reflected in people's choice of clothing, and within months the royal court was overrun with elaborately filigreed bustles and ornamental hats incorporating detailed silk tableaus of myths, legends and the evisceration of various martyrs. Some of this headwear was so graphic in its depiction of martyrdom that court fashion became a kind of test of endurance, where the only way to avoid seeing the worst hat was to be the one wearing it. It was in the realm of literature, though, that the Baroque style had the greatest impact on Grob. In 1793, a young writer named Peter Scrubs produced what is now regarded as the definitive work of Grobian Baroque poetry. Deciding that his name didn't quite strike the right tone, he published it under the nom de plume Polyphemus Beatitude Scrubs (laughs) and included a frontispiece which depicted the entire universe in miniature, although the printing technology of the day left this looking more like a smudgy picture of a dog smoking a cigar. The facing page was entirely devoted to the title, Many and complete verses upon the subject, most blessed and worthy of study, although embarked upon with humility, trepidation, and the willing acknowledgement of the author's own insufficiencies and limitations, of the knowledge, exegesis, and sober celebration of the mundane and worldly art of preparing nourishing victuals in a manner befitting a person of common virtues. The subtitle below reads, With Gravy. (laughs) Scrubs' original intention was to write a short pamphlet outlining his family recipe for meat pie, Shortly after starting, however, he became enraptured by the Baroque sensibility and adapted his writing style accordingly. By the time he had included references to classical myths, digressions into philosophy, and the occasional lengthy section of religious instruction, the simple culinary pamphlet had become one of the longest epic poems in Grobian literature, (laughs) comprising some 60,000 lines of intricate verse. Scholars of literary history report that the resultant meat pie is passable, if a little stodgy. Joel, I love the idea of this 60,000-line this recipe. And you've got an extract 
in the poem for us. I believe it's in Atava Rima. So it why, is, why did yes. he choose that for, old Scrubs? Um, well, actually, the, the kind of excessive length of the poem and the Atava Rima um, iambic pentameter um, wasn't something that I had to invent. It's something I kind of stumbled across reading a bit about Baroque literature. There was an Italian poet called uh, Giambattista Marino, whose name I'm definitely mispronouncing, um, <laughs> who uh, he set out to write a poem which was supposed to be three cantos, and it was supposed to tell the story of the love between Venus and Adonis. But he kind of got a bit carried away, and by the time he'd finished and he'd gone off on several tangents, it was uh, 40,000 lines long, <laughs> and one of the, uh, the longest epic poems in, in Italian literature. Um, and he worked in Ottava Rima, in Ibic Pentameter, so... <laughs> well, let's hear an extract from the, uh, the 60,000... Well, I've, I've chosen a, a short extract from one of the more focused sections of the, uh, of the pamphlet. <clears throat> Now take that side of beef that first we rent from flank of cattle, blessed in God's sight. As man was torn from paradise and sent to pass his lonely days in cursed night, and place it down with back and will unbent as ancestors innumerable might. Then, burdened by the countless sins of man, just chop it up and throw it in a pan. (laughs) Transcendent, then, the flame that freezes flesh. Transcendent is the stolen light of dawn, transcendent the divinity of breath, transcendent this disunity of form, and as in life there echo strains of death, unquickened flesh is hid in all that's born, so to your task, Promethean, with pride, cook evenly till browned on either side. It's funny, Joel, because we all got a great deal of pleasure from that, but you seem to get a great deal of pleasure as well from that experiment. And I wonder if, once you start with that kind of thing, with the grubby and stuff, does it take on a mind of its own once you get started? It, it kind of does, and, and there's, a, there's a real pleasure for me in, in being inaccurate and being <laughs> over the top and doing things badly. It's quite liberating, um, in a way, to be the, uh, the world's least reliable historian. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, yeah, you know, I, I have a great deal of fun. But the thing is, as well, it seems, you could say it was, some people might say it's self-indulgent, but to me it's the opposite, because like, it is like being, it's like being possessed by the <laughs> demon of these grobbians, and you can, you can do what you want. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I think it's being so self-indulgent that you kind of lose sight of yourself. It's, <laughs> it's being silly, and, and I think being self-indulgent at its best means playing make-believe, means messing about, and that's something that I think every writer should know how to do. And there's a lot of comedy in what you wrote for us there, but in your book, too, A Hundred Ways to Write Badly Well, you've pastiched the things that writers so often get criticised for, for mixing up tenses to giving us the whole plot too quickly. How did that project start? Well, I've, I've, as well as being a writer myself, I've taught creative writing for a few years in various contexts, and you, you kind of you get given so much work that, that follows the rules and that is technically perfect that it gets you get to dread it after a while. <laughs> but there's only so many perfectly honed... Raymond Carver short stories the world needs so I came to really treasure the stuff that that broke the rules or that went over the top or that was ill-advised so I I started this website where I I wanted to celebrate bad writing and bad ideas I thought it was a bit unfair to showcase other people's work so I set to the task of of doing a as the worst pieces of writing I could I could muster in myself and I got a bit I got a bit carried away and that turned into a kind of baroque project in itself I guess um so yeah I've tried to condense it back down to a hundred examples of uh ways to be you know the best of the worst the cream of the crap (laughs) but the thing is it's not always about excess could you read the Ernest Hemingway piece oh yeah well I think that that kind of that spare honed poised prose can be yeah a little bit of an affectation in itself so um 
Number 86 in the 100 Ways to Write Badly Well is um, a piece of advice which I think too many people have, have <laughs> heeded in the past. Try too hard to be Ernest Hemingway. So um, this is me having a crack at that. The night had come. Brett squinted. It was dark. <laughs> this was the last day of his life. There was water below him. He was in a boat. In an instant, he felt the night around him. Cold. There was a scar on his back, running from his left shoulder blade down to his right hip. He had got this scar from wrestling. He had wrestled bears. <laughs> bears are mean. I'm hungry, he muttered, but there was no one there to hear him. He felt the burden of the concept of masculinity weighing down on him. Also, he felt a pressing need to void his bowels. <laughs> then he heard the dull report of a distant gunshot. A previously unmentioned army had begun its advance. <laughs> Joel, it's true that you always imagine then that floweriness is the natural target for parody, but that mm. shows that spare writing can also reveal a kind of vanity on the part of the writer. But d did any of these experiments that you did in writing the book and the blog, did they lead to good writing for you? Yeah, which is kind of the ultimate failure. <laughs> when, when you're trying to do something badly and you fail so spectacularly that you actually end up quite liking what you've done. Um, yeah, th there were definitely a few pieces where I, I got to the end of trying to be the worst writer I could be, looked back at it and thought, that's better than what I normally do. <laughs> so th there was one piece in particular, I think the piece of advice was uh, forget what you're doing halfway through a sentence. So it was all about run-on sentences and kind of losing your, your train of thought. And I... I wrote this scene that was about a car crash and um, one line of description kind of slipped into the next. And by the end, I realised that what I'd written was actually quite an appropriate way of describing the, the chaos and panic of a situation that's out of control because the language itself was out of control. It was a, a series of runaway sentences shooting off mountain roads into gorgeous. <laughs> Thanks to Joel Stickley and A Hundred Ways to Write Badly Well is available from Nasty Little Press.